brother. Come on up. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. How exciting it is. Boy, what a group. You look awesome out there. I wonder if I look as good as you do. Don't answer that question. <laughs> Welcome those of you who are with us uh, coming in by Facebook and also on the internet. We're welcome to have you. It's what a blessing it is. And uh, boy, it's just exciting to know that God is in our midst and doing much these days. So praise his name. Uh, I was thinking this morning as I was preparing myself to come in that uh, with all the things that we're hearing about today and just the, the news, it's just so easy to get ourselves down and discouraged and and there's a lot of stuff to make you feel that way. And uh, I was just thinking about what it's going to be like when we enter into the kingdom of heaven and trying to reorient my thinking and my focus to just that. And so this morning, I just want to share with you real quickly from Revelation chapter 5. And this is uh, right after Jesus has given the instruction to John on the letters, of the letters to the churches. And, and then he gives him a glimpse into heaven. Wouldn't you just love to have been with John when this happened? So here's what John writes. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. Think about that. Just put yourself for just a minute there. And if you listen carefully, you can hear that. Right? You say, preacher, I don't hear anything. Well, if you're spiritually thinking, you can hear it. Around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was thousands of thousands and thousands. Imagine that. Can you imagine a group like that? Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it seems like the Spirit just stops right there, but it could have just continued on with a bunch of descriptions. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, I mean, everybody, is praising the Lord to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. How long? Forever and forever. Forever and forever. Wow. Listen, the number one priority of God's church is to worship. It's the number one priority. That's what God built us for. It was his good pleasure to create us just like we are to worship him. And he's worthy of our worship. Heaven knows that. And in the throne room of God, this is what we hear as John was privy to that. And so be encouraged this morning. In the midst of all of the mess that goes on and all the struggles that we face, we have a kingdom that is waiting for us where we will sing the praises of the Lord forever and forever and forever. Isn't that awesome? So I hope that's just as encouraging to you as it was to me this morning. Sometimes I just need a little bit of boost. And I'm not talking about the energy drink or the, the, the drink that, uh, you know, tastes like chocolate and vanilla and all that stuff. I'm talking about just a real swift spiritual kick that reminds us of what we have to look forward to. So praise his name for that. Well, let me give you a couple of announcements. And that is uh, today, right after the service, uh, Pastor Hamp is waiting on the call right now. Our shoebox ministry is expecting 500 boxes uh, to come in through a van and uh, they're not, our understanding is they're not built boxes, they're plastic boxes of sorts, and they need to be brought into the building. So if you can help with that, shouldn't take a long time, famous last words, right? So uh, I don't really know, shouldn't take a long time, the more the merrier, and bring those in. The shoebox ministry is one of our largest ministries that we do throughout the year, and uh, Deanna and Diana have been working hard on this. Uh, setting up the tables in the room just down the hallway. And by the way, if you're interested in helping pack boxes, uh, I know several of you have been here and done a marvelous job with that. Whatever your time frame may look like other than on Tuesdays, if you can just give us a call, we'll get you in touch with Diana or Deanna and set up the time where you can come in at your leisure to build some of these boxes. I think the count now is what? We're over, are we 400 already made? Not quite at 400? Should be today, okay. So praise the Lord. Our goal is a thousand plus, so uh, we re really could use your help, all right? But we'd want to try to set this up in a way. There's not going to be the annual packing party as we've done in the past. This is the way we're having to do it this year. So if you can be a part of this, you've seen the emails that have gone out. If you haven't seen that, then please uh, 
come to us, we'll let you know more information about it. But that's the big thing right now is the need to get these boxes packed. September the 9th, we're planning on starting DIA. At this point, I'm hoping to have in-person classes. And we're still waiting to hear from Brother Craig as he and Bonnie are gone for, for uh, family issues. And uh, they'll be back soon and we can uh, settle some of these issues with Awana. Uh, but right now we're going to do the Zoom thing with our discipleship classes, but also, uh, also in person for those of you that want to attend that. And hopefully you will. And we'll be getting more information to you through email about that as well. Okay? All right. Well, let's pray and just thank the Lord for this glorious day that we have to worship him. Father, as we were just reminded of this beautiful scenery in uh, the kingdom that you've prepared for us, John, thousands of years ago, has given to us your mind and heart as you gave him this vision of what awaits all of us. And so, Lord, in the midst of our struggles and our difficulties, we so thank you that you have prepared a way and a place and a time for us to be removed from this earth and to be with you forever and forever and to worship you because you are worthy of our worship. And now, Lord, we do just that. We come in our frailty and our humanness, our brokenness before your throne and ask you to receive the worship that we're offering up to you from our hearts this morning. And in turn, we pray that you teach us from your word that we might be instructed to know how to live best in this life according to your plan. So feed us, we pray, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and by the way, I didn't mention this in my prayer, but please be in prayer for those folks that may be in the paths of the uh, storms coming through the south. It uh, looks like it could be kind of rough for these people, so just keep them in mind. All right, so we're about to finish chapter 5. Can you believe it? <clears throat> it's only been five years on chapter 5, it seems like, uh, but not quite, but it seems like it's been a long time. We're about to finish up today, and we'll move on into the next chapter next time. So today is... The love that requires, that God requires of his people. The love that God requires of his people. All right? This comes from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43. So I'm going to ask you to please stand and let's read that together as we get our instruction now on a challenging, challenging, challenging subject from the Lord. So listen carefully. Jesus, as he's instructing the crowd, says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Many of you all will remember this, but I want to reiterate something that you have not thought about, I'm sure, and probably blocked out of your minds, quite honestly. But I think it'll help you get the point of where Jesus is going. It was the fall of just 06, just a few years ago, the writer puts, the unthinkable happened when in a one-room school full of Amish children who were taken hostage by a guy named Charles Carl Roberts IV. After a few terrifying hours, Roberts bound and then shot ten of the young girls and killed five of them before turning the gun on himself. Now that was staggering enough in itself. You remember that? I remember hearing of the news of that and just thinking, oh my word, how could it get any worse? But there's good news and there's something that's really came, come out of this. It's challenging, but it really sets the stage for us. Here's what the writer writes. After a few terrifying hours, Roberts, excuse me, <clears throat> the, within a few hours, the Amish families immediately began extending their forgiveness to the gunman just within a few hours and even visited his wife and the parents to offer them comfort. They even attended the killer's funeral. A grandfather of one of the murdered girls cautioned the family not to hate the killer. Quote, we must not think evil of this man, unquote. While another father said, quote, he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God, unquote. 
And that is amazing, isn't it? I mean, do you just kind of feel the same thing that I feel when I read about this? In my flesh, I want to be that person who just rises back against the atrocity that was done here. And yet we have this story that's really, in my mind, almost unthinkable. That the parents of these people were able to live life in that way, a life of forgiveness. It's absolutely astounding. Because if you're like me, it's one thing to love somebody who loves you back, right? I mean, that's, that's easy. It's easy to love people who love us back. But boy, is it a challenge to love people that we don't love very much or they don't love us. I mean, that just really gets to the core of everything that we are against in our sinful nature. But that's exactly where the Lord is setting the bar now. He's really laying it out there. And he's preemptively been planning all of this as he's now gotten to this difficult and very challenging section uh, this bar being so high, so high that nobody's going to ever be able to achieve it on their own. And that's going to become part of the point. And we'll see that as we get into the sermon now. So as you're aware, and as his outline has been faithful through all of these messages, he basically does the same thing for this section, which is to give the instruction that the Lord gave. He's going to talk about how the Pharisees perverted the instruction of the Lord, and then he's going to give to us five requirements that God has for his people when it comes to loving others. Okay, So that's what you want to remember there. But let's just go through as the Lord lays out the outline here. Look in verse 43 for the biblical instruction. You shall love your neighbor. Okay, You shall love your neighbor. Now, if you notice, and if you have a modern translation, I'm not sure King James does this. Maybe it does. For those of you who have it, you can help me to see that. Uh, but in my translation, New American Standard, it has those words capitalized. And the reason that they're capitalized is because the editors, when they put that together, wanted us to know that Jesus was quoting something from the Old Testament. It's a direct fulfillment of what the Lord is saying, or direct commandment from what the Lord had been teaching a long time ago. But the rest of this is not in capital letters. Notice how it says, and hate your enemies. If your Bible is like that, you see that. That's because these words are not in the Word of God. This particular section, this verse, is not, that part of it is not in the Word of God. And again, that's what we'll discuss in a minute. But let's go back for just a second and get into the mind of the Lord here when it comes to loving your neighbor. That was a very common and very understood commandment of God's people. They would know this. In fact, Leviticus 19, especially these religious leaders... Here's what it said. This was the law from God to Moses to the people while they were in the wilderness. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. Okay, within the context of Israel. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Very clear. No mixing that. Even in Deuteronomy 22, verses 1 through 4, when it comes to something even much simpler, the Lord says, You shall not see your countryman's ox or his sheep straying away and pay no attention to them. In other words, if your neighbor, wherever you live in Albemarle County or Greene County or wherever it might be, and they have those pretty little sheep and they have oxen and whatnot, and they happen to be out in the way and you see them, what are you supposed to do? Well, the Lord says you shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. In other words, if he's on the side of the road and you're driving by, you get out of your car, even the pouring down rain, and you bring those cows back into the field, right? I mean, that's basically what the Lord is saying here. Verse 2, if your countryman is not near you, now this is more of a stretch, or if you do not know him even, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it, then you shall restore it to him. Now I can just see that in our day, right? You've got a lot of busy things to do. You're even living in a townhouse and you see a cow on the side of the road that belongs to somebody that you don't know. God says, bring that cow back to your house and it can live with you until that person <laughs> comes along. You're saying, Pastor, you are really crazy. Now, yeah, I am crazy, but this is what the Lord is telling us, right? Okay, you can put whatever you want to put in there for the cow or for the sheep, or for the animal. That becomes the point, right? Verse 4, actually back to verse 3, thus you shall do with his donkey, 
You shall do the same with his garment or his clothing. You shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen, which he has lost and you have found. You are not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your countryman's donkey or his ox fallen down on the way and pay no attention to them. You shall certainly help him raise them up or rise them up. Okay, so you're not off the hook. If you see this happening, you have to do something with it. This was a very understood law among the Hebrews. And the purpose behind it was what? Love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. Love everything about your neighbor. Care for your neighbor. Even the neighbor you don't know anything about. You're to help take care of their stuff. And this was reiterated several times over in the Gospels and even in the letter to the Romans and Paul's letter to the Galatian churches and even in James. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. It was absolutely clear. And it should be clear for us. But, as God's enemies often do, and the people that don't want to listen to what God has to say, they ended up making a principle that was against what the Lord had said. But God had not made his principle unique to just the people we like. God had established this law even to those who are our enemies and to the enemies of Israel in the context of what we're studying here. In other words, God doesn't have a double standard. When God says love, he means to love everybody. And that's where it starts getting tough for us because we like to pick and choose who we love. In fact, in Exodus 23... God says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Your enemy's ox, okay? Well, it's one thing if you love your neighbor and his ox gets out of the field, but what about your enemy's ox? You're like, I'm not going to stop my car and get out of the rain and go put that ox back in the field. And I'm certainly not going to take it back to my townhouse. But God says, yeah, if it's your enemies, then that's what you're to do. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. In other words, you drive by and you say, oh, poor donkey, poor, poor donkey under the load of that burden. And then you find out that it belongs to your neighbor. Huh, I'm not going to help my neighbor because I don't like that guy. And so I'm going to leave it right there. And God says, no, you're not. That's not what my people do. My people love, and by the way, they even love their enemies. Tough words. And the point is that Israel knew this. In fact, even before the law was given, in the oldest book that we have record of was the book of Job. Even Job knew this and understood this because it was, it was born into the heart of mankind. God planned it that way. Job never treated and I'm not going to read through the scriptures to give you this, but you can just trust me on this or look it up yourself. Job never treated his enemies with contempt. He never did anything to harm them. And that's in Job 31. He never rejoiced when his enemies were harmed. And so through just these few illustrations, and we could go through lots of them, we come to the conclusion that God's standard has been for people, his people, to be merciful, to be kind, to be loving, to be gracious, to be forgiving, even when it comes to our enemies. That's the standard. That's where the bar is being placed. And that's even what the law said even before there was the law. That was in the heart of God. That was the law. And that's what Jesus was making clear. Now, where did they pervert the law? Well, we've already figured that out a little bit. If you notice the law in Leviticus 19, back to what I read a minute ago, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is where they started going off track. Notice the words there, as yourself. Well, the reason that that's there and specifically there is because the Pharisees and the scribes left that part out. Basically saying, it's not possible. I can't do that. There's no way I'm going to support that kind of thinking. This is where the sinful heart really elevates itself. To love somebody the way you love yourself would fly in the face of everything they held to about power, about control, about manipulation to what they wanted and how they wanted to keep up with their standard of living, their self-made standard of living, none of that would fit. You understand power corrupts if it's not guided by true godly principles, right? 
If the heart is not sold out to God, power will corrupt. That's what sin does. And so these people were saying, no, nobody in their right mind would ever deny themselves to the point of offering the kind of love that would only give of themselves, that would display a love that that person has as much as they do for themselves, for somebody else, much less an enemy. Good grief, nobody's going to do that. So they left it out. We're not going to have that in there. But they didn't completely forget about it either because God had put it in their heart. So they said, aha, here's what we'll do. Instead of leaving it out, we'll change it. We'll just make the, say what we want it to say. And it'll fit whomever we want to love or whoever we approve. The people that we want to associate basically would be their own kind, the Pharisees and the scribes. And that's what we begin to see throughout the Gospels as Jesus is dismantling their belief system, as they're elevating themselves and looking down on the other people. But that's where it all would come from. They're not going to love others like they love themselves. After all, they're better than everybody else, even though God had said what we've just learned. And that's pretty normal. We do that. We're not too far off, and that's what we've learned through these studies. For every sinful person, it's far easier to love those we care for. That's easy, right? It's effortless. It just takes no energy to love somebody that we know is going to reciprocate the love that we share with them. And we we feel the connection. uh, We get this good vibe from one another. We have these warm, fuzzy feelings and these similar interests. especially if somebody really listens to me. You know, our world is hungry for people to listen to someone or for someone to listen to them. And so if somebody listens to me and shows care for me, we have similar interests and on and on it goes. I can love those people. Well, this is kind of how the Pharisees disassociated themselves from people, like with the tax collector. Now, just to give the context there, a tax collector is not like the, you know, the H&R Block people, okay? It's not just the IRS. It's He's talking about people that were the extortioners. These were those people who were a lot of times Israelites who had been bought off by the Roman government to collect taxes that that were just so exorbitant that the people couldn't even keep up with it. But these were the people that bought into the system because in the background, not only were they getting money from the Romans, but they were skimming off the top themselves and charging the people even more. And so they were hated people. These are the people that nobody wanted to see coming. And so the Pharisee could stand up and say, look how great I am. I'm not like that guy who's a wicked tax collector. I mean, he steals from people. Remember, because everything was external for the Pharisee. Look at how bad he is. Everybody knows how bad he is. So I'm certainly not going to love somebody like that. And that's how they disassociated themselves. And they even went another step further, which is to just simply put other people, as I've already mentioned, into the same kind of category. Oh, well, you don't look as good as I do, so how could you? You're not one of the premier leaders of Israel, so you must be second in class. And so I'm going to disassociate myself from you. And so instead of just totally ignoring the commandment of God, they just left it out. But they knew it was there. So to make themselves feel better, they added something, which is what we've already read. Not only love your neighbors, but they said, ha ha, here's what we'll do. We'll say, but hate your enemies. That'll fit, see. That works with the system that we've contrived. Because that's really what was in their hearts. They hated people. They didn't have the love of God in them. And so the people who they didn't like were easy to put in that category. And so they made the law change, which said... Love the people you love, hate the people that you don't. And again, beloved, we do the same thing. It's possible for us to be like that. Well, contextually, though, we say, well, where do they get that kind of feeling, though? I mean, where where did it really come from? Was it really just the sinful nature? Yes. But it was kind of built into them, too. You know, we're products of our learning, right? We get what we get, and we become the people we become a lot of times because of what we're taught. Now, we're sinful by nature. But we can be taught to be more evil with our nature, depending on who we're brought up under. And so in Israel's history, you know that the leaders were told to drive out the adulterous or idolatrous nations around them. That was a very clear commandment from God. But you take a sinful heart 
and you put it together with a commandment like that and a sinful heart's going to say, you see, our God said, drive these wicked people out. So what he, re- what he must really mean is we're to hate them. We just hate these folks. And that's what happened. It just began to be, I believe, a part of their whole perverted system. And all it takes is just a little bit of sin to create all of that. It infiltrates the good and destroys it. It doesn't work the other way around. If it's not dealt with head on, the problem gets bigger and the situation gets bigger. And that's what we're having in our country today. We have a little bit of sin that has never been checked and never been kept in balance. And it's become a whole lot bigger because it's been tolerated and now it's gotten out of control and it's in the highest of all the offices, right? Because the human heart just sins. That's just what it does. Now it is true that God told Moses to drive out all the pagan nations. But listen, that was never an excuse for them not to love them. This is the irony in it all. Even though God gave the commandments to drive them out as nations, He never gave them the excuse not to love them as individuals. And we saw that last week. The goal was never to return evil for evil. That's what Jesus was straightening out. Unless it was under civil authority. Individually, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the personal relationships we have with people. Not on a bigger scale, not with the civil authorities. We're talking about people individually. It's never our responsibility to return evil for evil. We're always to be the opposite. And so the driving out of the other nations wasn't to create a personal standard of hatred for your enemies. That was not the idea but of keeping the nation pure. That was what was happening on a bigger scale. In other words, evil has to be pured, uh, purged or it's going to overtake what is good. That's the natural progression of things. You've heard the expression, right? A bad apple doesn't make the other good apples, well, the other way around, actually. A good apple doesn't make the other bad apples good, right? It doesn't work that way. Well, that's exactly what happens in the society, So the whole purpose, in fact, even of law and law enforcement, if we're just talking about civil authority, is that the role of the police and the military is to purge away on a civil structure anything that's going to harm society. And I don't want to elaborate on this too much because we've been through this a lot. That's the role of the authority structure. But it's never been given the officer or the military person individually or any politician individually to hate the person that they're governing that they don't like it's never been that it has always been it's never been their right to take things personally in their own hands of a society the role of christian law enforcement is to love their enemies while protecting those that they're called to protect and again we've talked about that in the past so What God is really saying to the people here is that our prayers are to be for our enemies just the same. To be convicted of sin. That's what we pray for. That they see their wayward lives so that they repent and turn back to God before it's too late. Never to hate them because they're our enemies. That's never been God's plan. If you want just another illustration, I can give you this one, which is when a child rebels against his or her parents' authority the parent doesn't hate the child now sometimes that happens but that's not the plan it's not God's plan for the child to be hated but to bring them under the discipline of instruction proper instruction so that they grow up to be the kind of people that they should be in society right I mean that's biblical in Hebrews 12 6 those whom the Lord loves he disciplines notice the phrase there those whom he loves he disciplines the purpose of authority is to love people into right living that's the whole purpose here god scourges every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you endure god deals with you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline discipline is designed to bring a person back into the right context of life and the right relationship not only with the parents and authority but with uh, God himself but the religious leaders didn't have any concern for any of that they didn't care about that what they cared about is what they wanted and how they were going to hold on to what they wanted to hold on to 
And so now Jesus says, there's the problem. So here are my requirements for you. And notice he says in the first verse, we've already talked about this, love your enemies. That's requirement number one. And you should write that down. God's requirement for me as his child is that I love my enemies. Now, some of you might say, God, I don't want to do that. Well, I'm sorry, that's God's commandment. That's what he's teaching us here. And to make it clear, he says, here's what the meaning of the word love is. You say, well, okay, I can define love the way I want to define it, but the issue is the word love is not about feeling here. It's not what the word that God is using. And if you understand Greek, you could go back through this and see all this. Just understand that he's not talking about happy thoughts or feelings here. He's talking about a love that is demonstrable. When God says you are to love your neighbor, he's not just saying, oh, look at my neighbor. I just love my neighbor. They make me feel so good. Now, that's a good thing to have, right? I mean, that's important. But that's not the issue. God says, no, when you look at your neighbor, I want you to show your love for them. I want you to demonstrate that love. That's what the word is, is, is meaning and what is being used here. A love that meets the needs. In other words, this is action-oriented. Okay, so get this in your head. It's a love that starts in the heart and then it displays itself through action, through visible signs. This is the whole meaning behind the Good Samaritan. You remember that story? It's the guy who hated the Jew. The Jew hated him because the Samaritans were the mixed breed of people. And Jesus tells this amazing story of how this guy who's a Samaritan sees this man who's been beaten and left for dead and he takes it upon himself to stop and bandage up his wounds and then eventually takes him to a a hotel of sorts and has him stay there while he goes and finishes his business and tells the owner, hey, whatever you spend on him, I'll pay you back when I come. And Jesus is telling that to help the Israelites see that, no, this is what it means to love your neighbor. That you love them with action. And you do what God has called you to do, not just from your own feelings. Now, all of us would say, of course I love my neighbor. I'm God's person. I'm God's people. But how many of us take the word love for what God is really saying and demonstrate that to our neighbor? You know, we have some great opportunities to do that. Like when storms come along, you know one of the first things that should be in our mind? How can I love my neighbor? What needs can I meet? Instead of going, oh gosh, well, what if the air conditioner cuts off? Or what if I can't get to the store to get what I need? You know, God's love says, what about your neighbor? Because he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? God is giving to us. Next time we get a storm or some situation that causes us to go out of bounds with life a little bit, start thinking, How can I love my neighbor through all of this? That's a demonstrable act, and that's what God's talking about. Let me tell you the story of a guy named Peter Miller. This is from years ago. He was a pastor in the American Revolution, lived in the state of Pennsylvania. says he enjoyed a friendship, and you'll recognize the name. His name was George Washington. Well, in the city that this pastor lived in was also a guy named Michael Whitman, who was an evil-minded sword who did all he could, it writes, to humiliate the pastor. And there are some people like that. Believe it or not, there are some people that just don't like pastors. I don't get it. I mean, I don't know why you don't just love every pastor, a Bible-preaching pastor. Well, one day, Michael Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Peter Miller, the pastor, traveled 70 miles on foot, 70 miles on foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. No, Peter, General Washington said, I cannot grant you the life for your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? cried Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? Well, that puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your pardon. And he did. And Peter Miller took Michael Whitman back home to the city in, in Pennsylvania, no longer an enemy, but a friend. Now, that's a very simple 
short illustration of something that is a real issue, a real story, just like we saw with the Amish people. Really? To love your neighbor as yourself, even your enemy, in such a way that you would do such a thing? Well, why would somebody do that? Because that's the love God shows us. That really becomes the crux of the matter. The picture that Jesus is painting is the picture of his own father. God's love is for his creation. And he demonstrates his love through action, which is what he requires of us. Even those who hate him. Notice this in verse 45. Look at it again in our text. God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. Now, whose son is it shining out there right now? It's the Lord's. This is what Jesus is saying. But he's not just shining it on Laurel Hill Church right now. There's a lot of people out in Albemarle County and around Charlottesville and all over the world that are feeling the joyful effects of the sun. And a lot of those people are enemies of God. They don't want anything to do with him. They deny he even exists. In fact, they'll kill you if you talk about him. But yet he lets his sun shine on them. And he does the same thing with the rain. We've enjoyed the rain these last couple weeks. In fact, we're saying, Lord, thank you for blessing us. We're kind of done with that blessing, right? Back in July, it was really hot. It was dry. We're saying, Lord, where's the rain? And God sends the rain. But he doesn't just say, okay, I'll put it on Bruce and Debbie's house, or I'll put it on Dave and Roy Lean's house, or Neil and Thea, or anybody else at Laurel Hill. But it goes all over the place because God demonstrates his love even to his enemies by providing what they need. And the greatest example that he demonstrated for us is what? He sent his son, right? He sent his son. He demonstrated his love for us. Jesus is the example of the Father's love. But guess who his enemies are? It's you and me before our salvation. Our sinful nature causes us to be the enemies of God. That's what the scripture says. We're enemies of God. In fact, Jesus said, those who don't belong to God are of their father who? The devil. Now the devil, the last time I checked, is not a friend of God. He's an enemy of God. But God demonstrated his love even to the very enemies of himself, his love by sending his son. You remember what Jesus said when he hung on the cross? Father, Forgive them? Who's he talking about? He's talking about his enemies. The very people who nailed him to the cross. The people that hated him. He said, Father, forgive them. They're the ones that hate me, but forgive them. Hey, they don't know what they're doing. Listen, you and I need to remember that as we watch the world unfold in this ungodly manner, and I'm talking about ungodly manner, these people don't know God. They don't know what they're doing. They do not know what they're doing. Now, they know what they're doing on a sinful level, but they don't know what they're doing when it comes to God and His creation and His love and His ability to give them breath to breathe. God holds their soul in His hands, yet He's kind still to let them continue to live for His own purposes. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He sent his son to be the replacement of our sin so that you and I could go free. God demonstrated his love. And so he says, I want you to be the same way. Listen, the point is, Jesus has many enemies. He has many enemies, but he is not their enemy. You see the difference? You and I may have many enemies, but we're not to be their enemy. That's the difference. Commentator R.C.H. Linsky writes this, Love indeed sees all the hatefulness and the wickedness of the enemy. In other words, we don't miss it. We see it. We feel the stabs and the blows and may even have something to do toward warding them off. In other words, sometimes we take advantage of how we can ward those off. But all this simply fills the loving heart with the one desire and aim to free its enemies from his hate, 
to rescue him from his sin and thus to save his soul. How, beloved, will the enemies of our souls hear of the redemption without those who understand redemption being able to give it to them? Do you know what the world needs to hear in the midst of all of our mess? God loves you. That's what they need to hear. He will not tolerate your sin. He's provided a way for you to be forgiven. You need to see it. That's what the world needs to hear. They need to hear the gospel that Jesus came, he died, he rose again so that you might have eternal life. That's the message. All this arguing and bickering and fighting for what's right and that kind of thing, okay, it may have its place, but the message of the church is the message of the gospel. We are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and we are to love our enemies. And we love them by giving them the gospel. And that should be clear. All right, now, here's the second thing. Let's keep moving. He says, pray for those who persecute you. This is the second thing, second requirement. Pray for those who persecute you. I remember when I was in seminary class many years ago, there was a man from India who had suffered under great persecution. And if you've ever been to India, you know along the rest of the world, there's lots of places that have deep persecution. And he was from that area. He and his father's family, very well known. He spoke against the, about that persecution against them. In fact, they had suffered so much as Christians. He said in that class, I'll never forget, he says, I'm just waiting for the day that the bullet with my name on it comes to me. I'm waiting for that. And I don't know what's happened because I lost touch with him a lot of years ago. But then he started talking about what persecution is and what it is not. And as a young guy in seminary, I remember this well, he started saying, persecution is being harmed in some way because you live for Christ. That's what persecution is. Because you're specifically targeted because you live for Christ. That's what persecution is, plain and simple. It's because you wear the name Jesus in your heart and some group or some person attacks you because of Jesus. That's persecution. And then he went on to talk about what I thought persecution was, which it is not, and that is the air conditioner's broken, my car broke down, I don't like what I'm having for dinner, you know, I don't have enough money, oh God, you must hate me, and the world hates me, and this is great persecution. No, that's not what persecution is. Many people have been persecuted over the years because of their identification with Christ. Listen to this, and here's, this is going to help you. John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So guess what? You get the brunt of it. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you. Listen, this, this is astounding. I chose you out of the world. Listen, think of that. God chose you and me. He said, you are mine. I choose you. I choose you, I choose you. And because of that, because I chose you, this world hates you. That's why the world hates us. It's not because of you. It's because of who we serve that the world hates us. Why? Because the world is of their father, the devil. Right? Staggering truth. So Jesus says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for your enemies. By ourselves, we can't do anything. And that's what Jesus said. But through prayer, souls can be changed. Hearts can be changed. Daniel faced great situations, very difficult circumstances. But through his prayers, three times a day, as he went into his prayer room, God did miraculous things. You remember those stories? Amazing things that God did. In fact, I remember one, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and the king comes. He, he knows he's a righteous man. He doesn't want to have to do it, but he has to throw him in there because the law says so. He shows up in the morning. Daniel's downstairs and he's just kind of singing some songs. Kumbaya. The lions have left him alone. Why? Because people have been praying. And God rescued him. You say, well, okay, pastor, that's great, but I'm not really great at praying. And I know that's true because a lot of times we have prayer meetings and people don't come. So it tells me that people don't know how to pray. So let me just give you some insight on that. And this is the Lord's Prayer. We'll see this in chapter 6. Jesus says, pray this way. Because the disciples said, Lord, how are we supposed to pray? And he says, good, I'm glad you asked that. Here's how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There you go. Pray that. Now, he wasn't giving them a ritual. Okay? Let's don't make it a ritual. That's not what he was doing. We'll talk about this when we get to it. But here's what he's basically saying. Number one, prayers are to acknowledge his holiness first. They're always to focus on his holiness first. That's why Jesus said, pray, hallowed be your name. In other words, God, I'm recognizing you for who you are, number one. You're God. Secondly, I'm acknowledging your will to be done, not mine. Not mine. Now, folks, listen. When it comes to praying for your neighbor, especially the ones that are your enemies, you better pray, Lord, your will be done. Because if you pray your will be done individually, it's not going to be pretty. Right? It's not going to be pretty. When we don't like our enemies, God wants us to pray for them. Jonah is a great example of this. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah hated the Ninevites. Hated them. He hated them so much when God told him to go witness to them and give them the good news about who he is, that God would offer them forgiveness. Jonah says, I'm not doing that. I hate those people. They're wicked, evil, disgusting, mean-spirited, and all they want is power and control. I'm not going to do it. He runs the other direction, hops on a ship. God says, I know where you are, Jonah, by the way. And so God just blows up this big storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. He's swallowed up by a big fish. Jonah says, this is not a good situation. And three days later, God has the fish spit him out on the beach and says, you know, I probably should rethink my plan here. And so he goes, lies up under a shade tree, feels sorry for himself until God says, Jonah, you know what? I raised up this tree over you to give you shade, but the tree is really just a tree. Now, why should I do that for you and not have mercy on thousands of people who could potentially come to me in salvation? Hmm, good point, Lord. Hard to argue with that one, but I'm still not going to do it. But eventually Jonah does get the picture and he goes and he, the Ninevites give their hearts to the Lord. But here's the thing. Jonah says, God, listen, I know that you're a merciful, forgiving God. And if I go to the Ninevites, you're going to forgive them. And God says, yeah, that's what I do. Well, I don't want to do that. And that's how we respond a lot of times. If I pray for my enemy, you know what that's going to mean? They might become my friend. And I don't like them that well. And I really don't want them as my friend. In fact, if I pray for them, then God's going to say, hey, why don't you invite them to church? And I like my church so much without them, I'm not going to take them to be with me in my church. And so I'm not going to do it. There, that'll show them. And God says, okay, I've had stiffer hearts than yours before. But Jesus is simply saying, listen, my people follow my commandments. And so he says, thirdly, pray for hearts to be forgiven. Pray for their forgiveness, that God would open them. It's a beautiful story of a reformed pastor named George Wishart. He was a friend of John Knox, if you remember that name, if you know biblical or church history. He was sentenced to die as a heretic because that's what they did in those days for people who followed Jesus. Because the executioner of Wishart selfless ministering to hundreds of people who were dying of the plague, the executioner hesitated carrying out the sentence. And now get this. When Wishart saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face, he went over and kissed him on the cheek, saying, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. Wow. Guy's getting ready to chop your head off or hang you at the gallows, or burn you at the stake, or whatever it is. And out of a love for Jesus and an obedience to his command, you go over and you give even your enemy a kiss on the cheek. You say, well, so why should I pray? Well, because God commanded it. First Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. And then, of course, this command here. But here's the other thing I want you to realize, is that is, you know somebody's prayed for you, Right? You realize that there have been people long before you ever came into this room and came to know Jesus that somebody was praying for you. And that's worthy of itself enough to pray for them, right? People come to Christ because enough people care about someone to lift them up to the Lord. That's why they come. 
Let me tell you this little story that was so cute. I just wanted to read it to you. I think you'll get the picture. A voyaging ship was wrecked during a storm at sea, and only two of the men aboard were were able to swim to a nearby small deserted island. The two survivors, not knowing what else to do, agreed that they had no recourse but to pray to God. Sounds smart, right? However, to find out whose prayer was more powerful, they agreed to divide the territory between them and stay on opposite sides of the island. The first thing they both prayed for was food. The next morning, the first man saw a fruit-bearing tree on his side of the land and was able to eat its fruit. The other man's parcel of land remained barren. After a week, the first man was lonely and decided to pray for a wife. The next day, another ship was wrecked, and the only survivor, a woman, swam to the side of the island. On the other side of the island, nothing. Soon, the first man prayed for a house, clothes, and more food. The next day, like magic, all these requests were fulfilled. However, the second man still had nothing. Finally, the first man prayed for a ship that he and his wife could leave the island. In the morning, he found a ship docked at his side of the island. The first man boarded the ship with his wife and decided to leave the second man on the island. He considered the other man unworthy to receive God's blessing since none of his prayers had been answered. As the ship was about to leave, the first man heard a voice from heaven booming, Why are you leaving your companion on the island? My blessings are mine alone since I was the one who prayed for them, the man answered. My companion's prayers were all unanswered, so he does not deserve anything. You are mistaken, the voice rebuked him. He only had one prayer, which I answered. If not for that, you would not have received any of my blessings. Tell me, the first man asked the voice, what did he pray for that I now owe him for my success? He prayed that all your prayers would be answered. Selfishness. God says pray for those who are your enemies. And then quickly, let's finish up these. This will be quick. Verse 45, we are to be a real son or daughter of God. A real son or daughter. Notice what he says. Pray for those who persecute you so that, here's his answer. Why do I do this? So you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That's why. So that you'll be real example. In other words, God wants us to be just like him. Just like him. He wants us to reflect his nature, his characteristics, his desires, his willingness. He wants us to reflect his likes and his dislikes. He wants us to be mirror images of himself. It was Jesus who displayed that. He manifested his father perfectly, didn't he? That's what he said in John 5, 19. Everything Jesus did was a reflection of his father. He even said he didn't come to do his own will, but only his Father's will. Jesus becomes the perfect example of this in John 6, 38. So in turn, God is simply saying, by loving your enemies and praying for them, you will be an example of me. You'll be an example of me, which is the kind of loving and peaceful person that God has for us to do and to be. That way, we will be identified as his children. Listen, No matter how someone else treats us, no matter how somebody else treats us, we are to be the reflection of our Father who is demonstrating His love. You might be saying, I can't seem to be faithful to my Lord. I I can't do that. How am I supposed to live that way? Well, let me give you another illustration. Some of you all will remember a guy named Watchman Nee. He tells about a new convert who came to see him in great and deep distress. And the quote is, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. And Watchman Nee said, do you see this dog here? He is my dog. He is house trained. He never makes a mess. He is obedient. He is pure, a pure delight to me. Out in the kitchen, I have a son, a baby son. He makes a mess. He throws his food all around. He fouls his clothes. But who's going to inherit my kingdom? It's certainly not going to be my dog. It's my son who is my heir. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. 
We are Christ's heirs, not through our perfection, but by means of his grace. Listen, you're saying this morning, I don't know if I can live up to this. The Lord's saying, you can through my son. You are my children. And I will provide everything that you need, the power, the impetus, the examples, the settings, the scenarios, whatever you want to call it, to display me as your father. I'll give you all of that. And I'll do it through the power of my son. And so finally, Jesus says with all that in verse 46 and 47, be an example for others. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's back to what we were saying earlier. That's easy. That doesn't require anything, so why should you be rewarded for that? It's good. It's right. It's like a friend of mine said to me one time he had a business, and he said this guy that was working for him came up to him and said, you know, you should thank me more for the work that I do for you. And my friend said, thank you. I pay you. I pay you to do this work. Yes, of course, I appreciate your work, but I don't need to thank you for doing everything that I pay you to do. That's why you're my employee. Well, the situation is the same thing here. We're not to look at the Lord and say, God, you should bless me because of all the things that I do. No, we just become a reflection of our Father because of who he is, and we become an example for others. So the Lord's point is, as wicked as the world is, God's people love the world. Not what the world does, but we love the world enough to lead them to Christ. God wants us to be different and to be the standard of love that's higher than anything else. When we see the world throw away everything for excuses and being weird and everything else, we should see souls that need to be saved. That's what we should see. When we live out our daily life, that's what we should see. Precious, precious souls that are on their way to hell that need to be redeemed. We should be the most caring people, even to those who are the most evil. And even those people that we may not understand, those people that we may not agree with, those people that we may consider to be on the other side of everything that we stand for. And thankfully, God's people have understood that and lived it out. One Sunday morning in 1865, a black man entered a fashionable church in Richmond, Virginia. When communion was served, he walked down the aisle and knelt at the altar. A rustle of resentment swept the congregation. How dare he? After all, believers in that church used the same communion cup. Certainly wouldn't drink after a black man. Suddenly, a distinguished layman stood up, stepping forward to the altar, and knelt beside the black man, with Robert E. Lee sitting and setting the example. The rest of the congregation soon followed his lead. Boy, that's appropriate in our day, isn't it? Listen, beloved, our job is to be lights, to do our duty that God has called us to do in this life, but to be lights before men, not so that we're noticed but so that our Father is noticed, so that we put him on display. And to all that, Jesus says, here's the bottom line. This is my requirement. You are to be perfect. Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. You're to be perfect in everything. We're to be perfect. No one who enters into the kingdom of heaven will get there without perfection. You say, Lord, I can't do that. I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. And that really becomes the point. That again is Jesus' whole point in all this. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot achieve anything that God lays down for us in his commandments without the grace of God working in us. And that comes through Jesus Christ who is our substitute. He hung on the cross to be the one who would be the substitute for all the sin that we cannot atone for ourselves. He came to be the finishing work of God in us to give us the ability to do what we cannot do and what we fail to do every single day. But yet we are to strive for it 
We're to work for it. We're to live our lives pursuing God, knowing that God in his power will do what we need him to do to make us able to, in this context today, love our neighbor as ourselves, even our enemies. Even our enemies. Jesus will give that ability. And really it's to him who receives all the glory. And let me close with the prayer from the Valley of Vision. I've read these things to you in the past. This one's titled, The Fullness in Christ. Listen to the Puritan expression of who Jesus is to them. O God, thou hast taught me that Christ has all fullness and an abundance of the Spirit that all fullness I lack in myself is in him for his people not for himself alone, he having perfect knowledge, grace, righteousness, to make me see, to make me righteous, to give me fullness. That is my duty. Out of a sense of of emptiness, to go to Christ, possess, enjoy his fullness as mine, as if I had it in myself. Because it is for me in him that when I do this, I am full of the Spirit. As a fish that has got from the shore to the sea has all the fullness of waters to move in. Help me to delight more in what I receive from Christ. More in the fullness which is in him, the fountain of all his glory. Let me not think to receive the Spirit from him as a thing apart from finding, drinking, being filled with him. To this end, O God, do thou establish me in Christ. Settle me, give me a being there. Assure me with certainty that all this is mine. For this only will fill my heart with joy and peace. Praise the Lord. Jesus. Folks, listen. We're a church who puts Jesus on display. That's our plan, that's our purpose. That's our marching orders. So don't get lost out in here, out in the world with all the what's going on to the point where Jesus is no longer the focus of your life and the one you are putting on display. In the midst of the darkness of our culture, display the spotlight of Jesus from your heart into the world. That is what the world needs. He is what the world needs. And when the world sees Jesus in and through us, we may sacrifice our physical lives, but guess what? That just means we'll be transported right into the throne room of God. But he will use our lives for his own glory so that the world comes to know him. Folks, listen. This is the message of God. And it is the continual message of God. And we're living in a society right now that desperately desperately needs us. I believe, I was in a meeting just this week, just a few days ago with some pastors and we were talking about all that we've been through and the stress on pastors and whatnot through this time and it was starting out to be kind of negative and one of the guys said, hey, let's talk about some of the things that have happened that are good. I personally believe, I didn't get to share this because the time faded out, but I personally believe this could very well be the greatest days of the church in the midst of such darkness in our nation. If we will think properly and we will trust the God who created us, this could be the triumphant glory of the church that God instituted for this time in this place. But we got to do our job. And our job is not to fight talking about from a personal level. Our job is to fight for righteousness, but our righteousness is on display through Jesus. And the way we do it, according to the context today, is we love even those who hate us. You go out here and love somebody who's spitting profanities at you, and they want to harm you because of who you belong to, they're going to have some real issues to deal with in their own heart and soul because that is going to be so contrary to everything that they're going to understand. They're going to say, you must be from another planet. And you're going to say, hey, guess what? My king is from another kingdom. This world is not my home. Amen? Okay. Those are our marching orders. Those are the commandments of the Lord. So those are his requirements. So let's go be the church. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the way that you have given to us 
really everything that we need. As I watch the kids these days play these games of where they go and search for various implements to put in their arsenal of weaponry to defeat the enemy, put it in their backpacks, and uncover things. I think about how many things you've given to us in the treasury of Scripture to be our arsenal. But the overarching weapon that we have beyond all things is love. And so help us, Father, not to be anything other than a reflection of you and demonstrate through our actions what it means to love. Lord, if it's helping cut up a tree, if it's helping to bring the mail in, if it's helping to cut somebody's grass, if it's just cleaning out gutters, if it's whatever it might be, Lord, may we be the reflection of you and your love in the world that needs it so desperately. Thank you, Father. Thank you for every soul who has come to hear today and wanted to hear from you. I pray that that's been the case. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Father.